and my friend's uncle who had lived in the Vale Valley for 30 years or so just kind of looked up at the clouds and said, ah, Joel, you should stick around tomorrow. It's going to be another good powder day. And I kind of <laughs> thought in my mind, I was like, hey, you know, hey, old man, I've got this meteorology degree and looking at these computer models and it all says that the storm's over. So I'm going to head home. And I remember driving home back over Vale Pass and it was nuking snow, big fat flakes. And I realized, one, I made a terrible decision <laughs> to <Right>. leave, but <laughs> two, there are these, I mean, we can call them microclimates or, or kind of mountain effects that were not well resolved in the forecast models that I had no clue about, but really wanted to figure out because that was the secret to some of the deepest days. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, talking to the king of the weather game today. Before we get to open snow, please swing over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is awesome, but it is just a small part of the storm. There is an article that accompanies this and every other Storm Skiing podcast that includes additional context on our conversation. I am also churning out breaking news, reporting, analysis, and reflections on the world of lift-served skiing all year long, a minimum of 100 articles per year. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Okay, I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to be the best. And that is why I am pumped about my new partner. This episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Is your ski resort ready for a second winter of revenge, tourism, and record guests? Are you looking to upgrade ski lift mechanic skills at your resort? but challenged by the cost and time to train your team. Oregon State's core online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. You can sign up your lift maintenance team at beeves.es backslash storm so they know we sent you. That's beav.es backslash storm. Okay, now for a word from Mountain Gazette. Look, I've been hammering you with this for two and a half years now, but you're not really going to get it until you hold Mountain Gazette in your hands for yourself. Issue 198 worked its way to me recently, and wow. First, the cover. Seth Morrison, Crushing Pile, captured by photographer Scott Markowitz. That shot tags an enormous spread on one of the greatest skiers of all time. And then, did you know there are 22 ski areas in Greece? Greece. There are some amazing picks to prove it too. Then writer and snowboarder Dave Zook gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in and retire from the competitive free ride circuit. And the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison 
who is living an inspirational life in a sit-ski after a spinal cord injury is just unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns too. We explore nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to the life of cyclist Mariah Wilson. But you really have to see it to understand how good this thing is. My man Mike Rogge, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid this out beautifully in the latest issue when he wrote, quote, A firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then, and only then, do they get it. End quote. Look, that's real. This thing is really awesome. It is the best outdoor print mag going, and you can get in on it by subscribing at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 109, Joel Gratz, CEO and founding meteorologist of Open Snow. A lot of you have asked me, bro, what the hell is a guy who's obsessed with skiing doing living in New York City? Fair question. But if you can hack the system and find a way to get yourself some wheels, New York is really not a bad ski town. And if you don't like the approximately 150 ski areas that you can reach within a five-hour drive of the city, then you can jump on direct flights to Salt Lake City, Eagle, Reno, Jackson, Bozeman, Denver, or pretty much any other major Western ski market from one of the New York area's three major airports any day of the week. In fact, it's almost too good of a location for a skier. So many choices so many different possible versions of my ski day, especially with all of these multi-mountain passes that I am always going on and on about, which allow me to shift my destination without much of a cost consideration. This is where I tap open snow, which distills weather down to the essentials. Where is it going to snow? How much? And when? Unlike your local weather guy who acts like a snowstorm is some kind of catastrophic alien invasion, These guys crave and celebrate snow just as much as everyone listening to this podcast. But the open snow story is so much more than just the story of your ski day. It is a really, really inspiring tale of how technology, initiative, and passion fused to create one of the most dynamic companies in skiing. Joel was just a guy with a computer and a meteorology degree, and he's created a product that goes to 3 million skiers every single day of the winter. And yes, Open Snow is a storm sponsor. This podcast was not part of that partnership, and Open Snow had no editorial say in or control over the content or editing of this podcast. And frankly, that is true for any guest on the Storm Skiing Podcast, and that is a condition for appearing on this podcast. I don't do sponsored content. This is independent ski media. I just honestly really like Joel's story. I really admire the product. And if you are a skier at a modern lift serve ski area, the weather is going to impact your experience as much as just about anything. Let's go. My guest today is the founding meteorologist and CEO at Open Snow. Open Snow specializes in snow forecasting and ski reports. He founded the company in 2011 with an email list of 37 people. And Open Snow's daily insights now reach more than 3 million skiers and snowboarders around the world. Joel Gratz is my guest. Joel, welcome to the storm. I'm sure you are loving this snowy November we're having. How are you doing today? 
Snow always makes me happy, and I am thrilled to be here as a longtime listener to the podcast. Hopefully, I can add uh, a little bit of weather color and entrepreneurship color for our listeners. I'm sure you'll kill it, Joel, and I'm so glad to have you here, and thank you for saying that. I'm curious here. I know this ski forecasting gig is an early risers game. We are recording this at 9 a.m. your time, but tell me this. How long have you been up and at it today? I can't remember when I went to bed. Um, (laughs) So I am normally up somewhere in the fours uh, local time. I I spend a lot of my time in Boulder, Colorado, where my house is, but I travel quite a bit in the winter with my family and friends to find snow. So time zones can be a little bit different, Uh, but I'm usually up in the fours and it takes me a solid two hours or so to go through all of my data uh, to create my write-up and the graphics and and publish everything. So if I'm trying to get out for first chair, uh, it starts a little earlier. <laughs> and if the weather is a little calmer, uh, it might start a little later. But it is just a routine that I've I've been in for over a decade. And while it's hard sometimes to drag myself out of bed, you know, by by six, seven, eight in the morning, I've completed kind of a creative semi you know, challenging task and it feels good to get something done uh, early in the morning. How does that look like on the other end? What time do you try to go to bed? Uh, not nearly early enough would uh, <laughs> every doctor and my wife would tell you. Um, I, as an only child, I don't know if this is, if, if it's because I'm an only child or not, but I kind of like my, my quiet time and, and that's pretty difficult during the day when uh, w- with family and, and running the business. And so nighttime is this delightfully quiet time where I can catch up on email, look at weather model runs, obsess over radar, uh, d- d- do whatever I need to do. So often it's hard for me to go to bed uh, sooner than the tens uh, so that it doesn't, it's not enough sleep. And I, I, I know that, but I'm also, I don't know, the lack of sleep is driven by an insane curiosity to do kind of fun, cool things around the business and, and the weather and not necessarily out of a, a stress response. So it's hard for me to, to shut that off. I just, I want to keep going. That, that, that whole routine thing is so interesting to me because I've gotten to know a lot of the folks who are entrepreneurs within the ski business, who are successful within the ski media. And what almost all of them have in common is they get up early. Now I get up early, but I'm able to kind of zone out, focus on what I want. It's different for you though, isn't it? Because you get up and you have a task that you have to take care of because you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people waiting on that insight and that input. So it makes sense that you need that morning, that evening time to kind of zone out and, and be in that area where you can kind of free work for lack of a better term. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And, and my year is, is chunked up into kind of two chunks. There's the October through April chunk, which is I'm getting up early. And then the, there's the May through, uh, you know, September chunk where, where I'm not. And it's just a different focus. Uh, and people ask like, oh, you, what do you even do in the summer? <laughs> right. And, and uh, well, the answer is a, a lot. Uh, I just don't wake up and forecast for those two hours in the morning. It's more of a, a normal uh, routine where my son wakes me up in the morning versus me already having been up for uh, a number of hours. But during that summertime period, we we now have forecasts that go year round. So I don't write uh, year round, but we're planning the business and you know the business doesn't stop even though uh, my personal forecasts do. 
Well, there's plenty to do in the winter, that's for sure. I'm really curious about this, as I am with all folks who are in the ski media and, and really focused on it day to day. What does your ski routine look like? You, you, you said that you like to get around. So what does a typical year look like? How, how much do you try to move around and sample the goods in different regions? Yeah, I, uh, my eyes are a little bit bigger than reality. Uh, but I, I so, think we all are. Yeah, that's fair. So we, you know, we work with uh, this guy, Powder Chaser Steve. I'll omit his last name uh, because he's still gainfully employed. Uh, but he he truly does chase all of the storms. He will go to Tahoe one day, then Utah the next, then Colorado the next, or up to Jackson. I mean, he is he is the real life. Uh, uh, incarnation of what our brains think we we want to do around powder chasing, and he's <laughs> incredible. And and he's just born out of uh, he was an East Coaster like me, and he just wants to chase snow too. So I'm not quite uh, there, but he. And by the way, he writes in the morning like I do five ish days a week. So he he's doing it all as well. Uh, for for me, I ski usually between sixty and seventy days a year. I am often not a bell to bell skier. Uh, a couple hours is great unless it's just the most amazing powder day. Uh, the last couple of years, I've been skiing a lot with my now five-year-old son, which is is great. But we, I, I get plenty of powder time too, so that's that's not a problem. Uh, and and my <laughs> ski routine is, we have a handful of friends uh, that let us crash on couches and spare bedrooms uh, throughout the mountains and often in Colorado. Uh, but we'll pick out a couple times a year. Uh, to go and and chase it within a reasonable uh, place, uh, Utah, New Mexico, other areas of Colorado, up to Wyoming. Sometimes we make it a little bit further, but it's a little bit harder with the kiddo. But he he has gotten into the routine that we tried to establish last year, which is find a place that has snow, find a place that we can get him into a lesson early in the morning. Uh, <laughs> parents go out and ski snow while kiddo is in a lesson and then pick them up uh, during the afternoon and ski together. So uh, we're still kind of early on in that routine, but that's what it looks like a little bit. Also the, the, you know, it takes a village type of thing is totally true. We ski with a bunch of our friends uh, who we've skied with kind of for a lifetime. They all have kids. And so at some point we're taking care of their kids while they're skiing or vice versa. So, you know, we're piecing it together, but it looks a lot different now that I'm 40 versus in my late twenties when, uh, when we could do whatever we wanted. What does that routine look like, Joel, when you're in Boulder? Because I think a lot of us are able to do what you do, which is get out a couple hours a day, but the routine is important. It's, it's how do you work it in? So it's something you do like eating breakfast, right? It's just something that happens every day or taking a shower or whatever. And, and I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you, do what you have to do, run up to Eldora? Do you try to make Winter Park? What does that routine look like when you're at your home base? <laughs> my, my routine, I, I think the best way to describe it is within my brain is kind of like the, uh, the old Pong game on the mm-hmm. computer where, you know, the, the ball goes back and forth and back and forth. And I'm constantly thinking about what the most efficient, <laughs> best use of time with the best snow is. And it probably annoys the heck out of uh, my wife and friends who just want me to <laughs> lock it in. Uh, but, but, you know, part, part of the, part of the secret of good powder skiing is low expectations. And the other part of the secret of good powder skiing is to be ultimately flexible until the last moment. So that's kind of just 
the deal. Now, I'll say for you know the front rangers and for people that that don't kind of understand the area, the Boulder Denver area, it's it's the gauntlet in the morning to try to get from from Boulder up through I seventy into the bigger mountains uh, west of the divide. Uh, if I'm doing that, and I try to avoid that because I do love driving in the snow with my snow tires when there's nobody else on the road. So I I'd much rather drive at ten o'clock at night or three in the morning, then go with everybody else is going. But if I have to have to have to go uh, in the morning when everybody else is going, I'll just wake up even earlier <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and go. What we were trying to do, though, is if we know there's a good storm cycle coming in, we'll, we'll stay up in the mountains with friends. Or if it's a upslope storm cycle, we can talk more about that later. And Eldora looks like it's favored. It, that's a little bit easier. That's only 45 minutes from Boulder. And, and there's some backcountry skiing opportunities here too. You know, some people will ask me, you know, why are you in Boulder? Like Boulder is a great town, but it's not necessarily a great ski town. Eldora is 45 minutes away, which is great. Uh, and they can have some good days and there's some backcountry, but otherwise you're driving an hour and a half to two hours with everybody else in the front range to the mountains. And a lot of the reason is I got my start here with a super supportive business and entrepreneurial community. Uh, and I still feel that support. So not that that doesn't exist elsewhere or we couldn't just move to the mountains full time, but I like that variety where I can be in the mountains and explore the mountains a lot, uh, but also have a bigger kind of business and entrepreneurial community uh, down here in the front range. So, so far so good. Uh, but I think it's, you know, a yearly conversation with my wife and I uh, and friends if, if and when we would uh, move more full time into the mountains. Well, it sounds like you have a pretty good pattern figured out for now. I mean, 70 days a year is no joke. Sounds like, Joel, you're mostly moving around the West. When you said have low expectations, that is an East Coast skier by birth <laughs> speaking. So I'm curious, you, you grew up out there. Do you still ski the East at all? Well, the, the short answer is no, but let me qualify that. <laughs> uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia when where the rain-snow changeover line was a constant issue and I got the bug of skiing and, and weather at around the same time at age four. So most meteorologists know from an early age, they want to be a meteorologist. It's a snowstorm. It's a tornado. It's a hurricane. It's something that kind of piques their interest. So I grew up skiing almost all of my childhood days at Shawnee Mountain uh, in the Poconos in northeastern Pennsylvania. I raced, I instructed, and, uh, and, and I loved it. Uh, to be honest, it was absolutely incredible. I still vividly remember all of these days with with many of my friends whose names I still remember, even from early childhood. Um, but I moved out west, and and we can go go through that in more detail. But the the short answer is I moved out west and discovered this powder skiing thing, which I had only seen once in you know, fourteen years of skiing on the east, and uh, became kind of enamored. Uh, and and at this point, uh, I'm I'm just out here now. I think. I have no problem ripping groomers and, and I would love to ski in the East, but we just spend so much time here in the West that uh, it's not a usual ski trip that we would take at this point. But I think, I think uh, I owe it to my son uh, to go back East a couple of times so he can understand uh, the importance of technique and sharp edges uh, and just get it, get it. Well, I mean, I kind of say that jokingly, but it's also, right. It's a different experience for, you know, growing up in a mega or at least around mega resorts in the West versus uh, in the in the east, and I find that you know my love of skiing. A lot of my friends grew up in the east. And we just have this core love of skiing that had nothing to do with high speed quads, 
or or fast laps or anything. It was really just being on the hill with friends and the conditions almost didn't really matter at that point. And so I want to make sure at some point that he understands, uh, you know, <laughs> when we live a charmed powder life, uh, there's other uh, amazing reasons to, to be in skiing. And it's not just, uh, you know, the biggest vertical and the deepest snow. It's so funny that you mentioned Shawnee in that context, Joel. I love Shawnee. I respect what they do. I've had CEO Nick Fredericks on this podcast who has been part of that ski area since it was founded in the mid 70s. But it's a whole different game and it's a whole different kind of skiing. And they almost don't even like getting natural snow in the Poconos because they almost don't know what to do with it. I'll give you an example. Two winters ago, they got a two foot dump and Shawnee was right at the bullseye. And I think they got over three feet. That was the open snow bullseye. I had them, I think, in that 36 inch mark. So I went up there and there was all kinds of cool tree skiing that's never open. And I skied around and they had big sections of the mountain that were actually roped off and not open because the snow had fallen there. They hadn't either hadn't had the time or hadn't had the manpower or whatever to groom it out. So you had this situation that you would never, ever, ever have in the West where you had three feet of fresh snow that no one was allowed to ski. And of course, people were ducking the ropes and I ducked the ropes and, and went and skied it. But they were almost like, we don't know what to do when we don't have our you know, boilerplate man-made snow that we blow onto the mountain and groom out. And we're just going to close this because we're afraid that our skiers won't know what to do with it. And, and if I was trying to ski three feet of snow, you know, as, in my teenage years with my race skis, I wouldn't have known what to do with it either. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Uh, the blizzard of 1993, they got a couple of feet of snow. Also, uh, I was 12 years old and I, you know, we wanted to go through the woods, you know, as wide eyed yeah. kids, like, Oh my gosh. But but also to put that in perspective, 99% of the time when we were there, the woods were brown. Like, right. like it wasn't that we were just waiting for this magical blizzard to happen so we could ski the woods. We didn't have a conception that you could ski the woods. Like that, right. that wasn't even, even possible. So I, I get it. And it's, it's just a different deal. Now, of course, further north in New York and New England, uh, they're real powder skiers and people understand that there's, there's real powder, but down in the Poconos and, and area south, it is a, a rare time to have a couple feet uh, of snow. And uh, and most of us growing up there had very little idea of what to do with it. So whatever it was, that version of skiing appealed enough to you that it sparked this interest in meteorology. And you ended up attending Penn State to study meteorology. So so take us through that. How, how much was that, in fact, that major and that choice of where to go to school informed by those early experiences skiing and this fascination with this snow rain line that you described earlier and and with skiing yeah i think it's, i think it's 100 <laughs> percent attributable <laughs> neither of my parents grew up skiing uh they took me to shawnee when i was four because i think there was some weekend stay stay and ski special and they just thought it would be a good way to get out of the house and i have no idea why but i loved it I also fell asleep, uh, apparently, uh, while they carried me walking across that long bridge back to the parking lot. But that's that's another story. So I was just fascinated with trying to figure out uh, the world around me. And in this case, it was the weather around me. Why was the sky doing something? Why uh, were we on the rain snow line? Uh, when could I would call their call in number for the snow report to see when they would be making uh, making snow to figure out when terrain would happen. And children often get fascinated with something. Uh, and for me, it was 
just the weather and and all of the inputs kind of into skiing. So I, I remember being super into weather in elementary school and middle school, but I also remember having this discussion uh, with my mom in in middle school when we were just dabbling in college, and I was I was thinking I was like I don't know what I want to do, and she just looked at me dumbfounded like yeah. you don't know what you want to of course you know what you want to do <laughs> you want to do weather this is all you talk about all you think about <laughs> you you just bought a weather station you keep weather records like i don't like oh, who wow. are you kidding right so um so penn state i looked at a couple schools but penn state was both in-state um tuition which was wonderful and uh, a phenomenal meteorology program and unlike maybe some other more general majors there are not many schools across the country uh, that have big meteorology programs. So I went to Penn State and I, I would say I found my my tribe, right? I walked into the weather station there and there was a bunch of undergrads and grads and grad students and, and professors and we're all just geeking out on the weather. And, you know, in high school, I was the weather guy. You know, nobody else was as into this as I was, but there I was one of a few hundred people that were kind of the weather nerds and that felt awesome. And I knew I kind of found my calling. So you find your place at Penn State and after graduation, made your way out west. What pulled you out west? You just tired of skiing Tussie? Was it an immediate thing? Did, did, did it did it take a little time? What drew you to Colorado? I got to tell you, shout out, shout out to East Coast Skiing. Uh, so when I was at Penn State, uh, I was on the Penn State ski team, which was uh, a racing team. So we trained. Uh, and, and some of the people were actually quite good. I was a mediocre racer at best. Okay. Same technique, no speed. Uh, but but it was a really fun group, and we kept skiing. And Tussie Mountain uh, is smaller than uh, Shawnee. Shawnee seven hundred vertical feet. Tussie is about four hundred um, from from tip to bottom. <laughs> but but it was also only ten minutes from school, uh, which was it's amazing. Steep. Yeah, and and it was steep enough to, to ski. I mean, we did giant slalom, which was kind of funny because it was over quite quick. But but you can <laughs> ski there, and it was close to school. And we skied a couple of days a week, and and just like I said, finding my tribe in. Uh, in meteorology, I found the crew of the people who just love skiing and love to hang out and love to be outside. And we do dryland training and hike. And um, that was just, that was just incredible. So that really, I, I mean, of all things at Penn State, the Penn State ski team made my um, time there super special. And a few of us after school were thinking about heading out West uh, to pursue work or graduate degrees. And uh, so I applied to the University of Colorado Boulder for for grad school and a kind of hybrid meteorology environmental studies policy uh, type program and I got in and uh, and a friend of mine from the ski team also was coming to Boulder to just work and I'm like well let's move to Boulder so that that was it but but I I only had one experience skiing out west like a really solid experience before moving out here and that was at Alpine Meadows we had a friend at uh, on the ski team who grew up uh, skiing alpine and was from California so uh, a friend and I went out there. And we were very lucky, you know, Tahoe, and I think we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more maybe, but Tahoe can be kind of boom and bust, can snow a lot, and sometimes it can not snow a lot for a long time. But when we happened to go out there, uh, it was December, it snowed a couple of days in a row, and it was just amazing. And so picture this East Coast skier with pretty good technique, <laughs> but tiny, narrow race skis going up <laughs> to the top of Alpine Meadows uh, with about 12 to 14 inches of fluffy powder and I had zero conception of how to ski it. I fell probably, no joke, 20 times in 500 <laughs> vertical feet. I just, you know, like it just, it's a totally different style of ski. Yes. Um, but I thought that it was also pretty magical. 
And, mm-hmm. and so this stuck in the back of my mind, like, hey, when we come out to Colorado, you know, maybe it's not the snowiest place in the world, but it's more snow than the East Coast. Uh, <laughs> so I came to Colorado, both from a professional standpoint um, for graduate school, but also to explore the bigger mountains. So how did that go? You know, you're suddenly, I know for me, when I, when I moved even from the Midwest to the Northeast, I, I suddenly had this access to these big vertical drops. And for me, that was a huge level up because I'm going from, you know, Boyne Highlands being the biggest ski area I can reasonably reach in a day with 550 vertical feet to being able to pop up to Hunter Mountain with 1600 vertical feet. And yes, you still have the conditions challenges in the east, but just to be able to have those sustained runs was a big deal for me. So what was that like for you going from Tussie, which, as you said, nice little community hill does what it's supposed to do really well, but it's not even Eldora, which is like sort of that gateway mountain and is is in the shadow of its much larger neighbors. So what was that like for you to suddenly be in this powder wonderland within a couple of hours of all the Summit County and Eagle County ski areas and, and Winter Park and and all these other places? And and how much and how hard was it to focus on grad school with that in your zone? Well, I distinctly remember thinking after being here in Boulder for a couple couple months that I'm really glad I didn't come to undergrad here because I don't know if I would have graduated. <laughs> and that's that's coming from like I, I was a my friends will tell you I was a pretty good student and, and pretty detailed. I mean, I like to have fun, too, but I, I was pretty nerdy. Uh, I, Boulder is just you know, it's, it can be sunny and 70 and 80 and just delightful. And then a few hours away, you have this mountain playground. And I I don't know that I, which is kind of completely opposite of Penn state, which is cloudy for, you know, 99% of the year, I I joke, but it's cloudy (laughs) quite a bit. So it's a different deal. And I'm I'm glad I was from the East coast and went to Penn state. uh, But this was kind of a different animal. I distinctly remember uh, the first time I was out here that first uh, fall, Copper Mountain opened pretty early. And that's pretty typical. They are at a higher elevation and can make snow uh, due to that higher elevation pretty early and can open uh, kind of like this year, uh, top to bottom skiing pretty early in the season. So I remember going to Copper thinking that, oh, they just have a few trails open. I mean, I just want to slide around. And the skiing on machine-made snow uh, from top to bottom was as good or better than anything I had skied in the previous 20 years. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is, <laughs> you know, it's just a new world. It's not that I was kind of um, upset with East Coast skiing. I just had no idea that this existed. And so that's, that, that was a big transition uh, for me. And then, and, and, but I'll tell you what the biggest transition was, which was getting into a routine of powder skiing. And I'll still remember being with a friend, uh, one of my friends from Penn State, and we were skiing Vail. This is a year or two after I had moved out here. And Vail had uh, a phenomenal uh, series of storms and some early season powder in the back bowls. And I still had my little race skis because I still wasn't quite buying that I needed, a, 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 I don't know, a wider <laughs> set of skis. Like I, I just, I didn't realize that that actually made a difference. So I had my little race skis and my friend's uncle who had lived in the Vail Valley for uh, 30 years or so, toured us around the back bowls. I remember two... Uh, amazing things happened. One, I got stuck going straight downhill, not falling, <laughs> but but my skis just, you know, s- stuck into the snow because they were tiny little race skis. Uh, and so that was the first thing I, I realized, like, oh, I should probably pony up and buy some wider skis. Uh, right. But the second thing was after that day, and we were, we were packing up um, in, in the car, uh, my friend's uncle who lived in the valley for a number, for 30 years, 
just kind of looked up at the clouds and said, ah, Joel, you should stick around tomorrow. It's going to be another good powder day. And I kind of <laughs> thought in my mind, I was like, hey, you know, hey, old man, I've got uh, I've got this meteorology degree and looking at these computer models. And it all says that the storm's over. So I'm going to head home. And I remember driving home, distinctly remember this, driving home in, in the dark back over Vail Pass. And it was nuking snow, big fat flakes. And I realized, one, I made a terrible decision <laughs> to right. leave. But two, there there are these, I mean, we can call them microclimates or, or kind of mountain effects that were not back then and still to some degree are not well resolved in the forecast models that I had no clue about, but really wanted to figure out because that was the secret to some of the deepest days. And so within two years or so of moving out here to Colorado, it was this big mystery that opened up in front of my eyes that these really deep, amazing powder days, like the ones that you will remember for the rest of your life, happen in a way that isn't always well predicted. Um, and that irked me because it's okay if the weather forecast is off by a few degrees or is off by a few inches. That's that's normal. We're not perfect yet. But when the weather forecast says four inches and the back bowls have 16, uh, something, <laughs> something happened, right, that we didn't understand. And that set me on this crazy journey that I'm still on today. That's what's so interesting about this to me, Joel, is growing up in Michigan, it either snowed or it didn't. I mean, there was there was lake effect along the western edge, and that was well understood. But this notion of, you know, I remember being out at Alta a few years ago, and it was just dumping the whole time I was there. And it was December, they had like a 90 inch base. And you drive down to Salt Lake City to go back to the airport, and there is not a flake of snow on the ground. And, and this is like 20 minutes away. And I, I'm just like, you know, my Midwestern brain still <laughs> cannot understand this. And so I, I've always been really fascinated with what you're doing, because it really takes all of this weather information that's out there and distills it through this microclimate, mountain, mountain effect, however you want to frame it, lens. And it's so interesting how you got there. So so take us through how you did get there, because you didn't, I don't think, start Open Snow right away after grad school. Take us through your path after grad school and how you started as a hobby predicting and forecasting snow for the mountains, and then eventually how this turned into a full-time gig for you and you with the launch of Open Snow. Yeah, for sure. So this is, it's like many things in life, it's a series of semi-accidents that come together to make something uh, make something possible. So I had two situations that drove me to try to figure out this mysterious high, high-end Western snowfall that can, that can sometimes occur you know, way beyond what, what the forecast models show. That one time was at Vail uh, that I mentioned, I think the second year I was out here and uh, the second or third year I was out here, I was, it was in November and I was skiing uh, Breckenridge with some friends and it was late uh, November and it was a good day. It was six or seven inches of, of fresh snow a decent amount of the, uh, amount of the mountain open, and we had a we had a lovely day, uh, especially for early season. And I remember driving home and feeling a little bit uh, <laughs> I don't know I don't want to be braggy, but you know happy that yeah. we got a good day and maybe some you know some <laughs> my friend up at Steamboat. I wonder what what happened to her and if the storm <laughs> materialized at all. So I so I called her. Maybe she called me, and uh, she said, "Well, I'm glad that you skied." Uh, six inches of snow. That's really nice. 
you know, the resort isn't open up here yet, or maybe it just opened. I, had, I forgot, but uh, I just skied 48 inches that fell in the last three days. I was like, wait, wow. wait, what? Like, I don't, I don't understand how this is feasible. Maybe the forecast was for 12, not for 48. And, uh, and that just like that veil day where, where my friend's uncle, you know, out forecasted me by kind of looking at the sky. <laughs> uh, I just was so, I mean, you could say curious as a, in a charitable way. The other way to say it was I was super pissed off uh, because I, of course I wanted to be there, right? If I knew that Steamboat would have that much snow and I'm, I'm clear, like clearly Steamboat doesn't always have that much more snow than Breckenridge. And in that instance, it did. Um, I, if I would have known, I would have gone, right? And I would have remembered right. that day for the rest of my life, but I, I, I didn't. So those two situations set me down this path where in, in meteorology school at Penn State, I learned a ton and I got a great foundation. Uh, but they don't teach you, and no school would really teach you, how to forecast snow in the microclimates of Colorado. So I spent the better part of two years skiing with friends and trying to direct us to the most powder by looking at all these computer models, reading National Weather Service local discussions, because these folks had been out here for, for decades, and you can kind of glean some more local knowledge from them. And the most important thing was just to ski. I also remember a time where I said, oh, Vail's going to be massive powder day today. We should go. And it snowed no more than one inch over the entire day of piddly, tiny flakes. And that feeling in, the, in my gut was so awful that I had not just been wrong, but let all my friends out here. And, 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 and that's how you learn, right? You go back and then I study for hours trying to figure out what happened. So after about two years... Uh, of doing this and my friends chiding me all the time that none of this was working and that I was pretty terrible and I would always jinx the storm. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I had a, uh, I had a little, I, I had enough confidence to throw 37 people on an email list on one Tuesday night at around 1am, hence the staying up late after, you know, my day job was over. And I just emailed them a forecast for where I thought it would snow the next uh, week. And I emailed everybody because despite all of my friends giving me crap about how poorly my forecasts were. Uh, I was tired of them constantly texting me, also asking where they should go. So I said, well, I'll just throw it on, a, I'll just throw it on an email list and, and, and we'll be good. So it was just a mix of friends and a few colleagues. And, and that was that. I had no long-term uh, business plan at that point. I had, uh, I, you know, this wasn't the typical, I had gone to business school actually here as part of my, my graduate degree. And I had took some business classes undergrad because I was curious about it and thought maybe I'd do something in business, but this was not a, I'm quitting my job immediately and emailing my friends a forecast. I was just doing this because I wanted them to stop bothering me. Um, and so, but that was, that was the genesis. And, you know, those 37 friends told a few friends and they, those few friends asked me to add them to the email list. And then it was 50 people and then it was 60 and then it was 70 I'm like, okay, well, this is pretty cool. And by the way, I like writing. So that was the, uh, that was the start. So was there a moment when you said, okay, this is catching on. Um, I have a good job during the day, but maybe this could be a thing. And once you had that epiphany, did you go all in or was it sort of a, uh, did you keep your, your full-time job for a while and try to build open snow a little bit before actually quitting? Yeah. So my, 
my uncle has a, a saying about me. He says, I move at the speed of molasses, but at least it's in the right direction. So <laughs> this all took a long time. I did not go out and raise venture capital or friends and family money or something and just jump into it. I wrote uh, nights and weekends a couple times a, a week, uh, this forecast for the better part of two years. Uh, after about the second year, I had the good fortune of meeting uh, professional skier Chris Davenport, who was in Boulder signing a book he had just written about skiing all the 14ers, the 14,000 foot mountains in Colorado, which was an amazing feat. And I said, Hey, uh, Mr. Davenport, and I'm so nervous. I mean, this was just like, I don't know, it's like asking somebody out on a date or whatever. It's like, Oh, Mr. <laughs> Davenport, can you sign this book that I just purchased? And by the way, can I have your email address? I write this, you know, weather forecasting thing. And, uh, but, but to his credit, he's like, yeah, I love weather. This is super cool. Yeah. So, uh, so I put him on the email list and then, you know, Chris is, Chris is a totally legit <laughs> professional skier and, and just an all around amazing person in the ski mountaineering community and lives in Aspen. And so he started sharing it with some friends in Aspen, you know, and friends in Aspen are like kind of one of the epicenters of, of a ski mountaineering world. And so it got some credibility uh, early on, which made me feel pretty good. And then it got written up in a few magazines and newspapers. I just thought after two or three, I had made it a blog. I'm not super technical, but it was good enough at coding to get a blog up and running uh, back then. That was before Squarespace or anything else. You usually needed to do a little bit of coding. Uh, and I just, I distinctly remember uh, being about two years into this thing that I was doing on nights and weekends. And I had tens of thousands of people visiting. I had made it a blog, uh, visiting a blog. And that might sound amazing going from 37 people to tens of thousands, but you know, this is the internet, right? Facebook scale is a billion. So like tens of thousands doesn't, <laughs> while, while personally satisfying, uh, I wasn't sure that there was actually a business there. But one other thing happened, uh, which has forever indebted me to Boulder, which is at the same time in the late aughts, 07, 08, 09, uh, this thing called Techstars was starting. And Techstars was uh, this incubator where basically uh, a group of kind of seasons business and tech people come together and host of uh, people that are trying to start businesses and give them advice and mentorship. And so I wasn't a part of that, but I had some friends that were, and I was watching all of these people uh, start businesses. Some worked, some didn't, but this was just incredible. And I had the MBA, so I kind of had a few ideas of how to use Excel and PowerPoint, uh, which my friends kid me about with, with the MBA. But um, so I knew that I saw this kind of business community growing in Boulder. I had this thing that people were excited about. I had a personal passion for the business. And I just, I woke up one morning after kind of dabbling around in my mind and I said, I got to go for it. And, and it wasn't, you know, some long list of pros and cons. <laughs> it was, um, I love this. And there was no time in my life that I realized that would be a better time to take the risk. Uh, I was in my late 20s. I had no wife, no significant other, no dog. I had a roommate staying with me that was, you know, covering half the mortgage. Um, and, and so in other words, if I tried and failed, uh, it was recoverable, right? And my cost of living was was quite low in the 20 to 30,000, you know, dollar a year range. So I was like, well, I can probably recoup that, right? If I If I do... Um, if I do well. And, and this also, there's another piece of this that I don't think most people talk about because starting a business seems, um, I don't know, it's just, it's exciting and it's fun and, and, and all that. And it's celebrated, but there was a piece that my friend um, Tim pushed me on. He said, but why that morning when you woke up, did you just say, I'm going to do it? I'm going to do it. Like what pushed you over the edge? And the reality was, is that I knew I had some savings, 
right? I wasn't going to be destitute on the street, but I also knew um, that, you know, my dad said, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, I'm not going to give you all the money in the world because we don't have all the money in the world, but I'll make sure that, you know, you got enough. So you still have a roof over your head and you can get back over your feet. Right. And so that backstop, uh, you know, this isn't like, you know, millionaire parents or something, but just that backstop and knowing that uh, I wouldn't lose everything, <laughs> you know, if I tried and failed was really, really um, important. So put all those things together and uh, I gave, I gave my work, which was wonderful, uh, you know, six weeks notice or so. And uh, on my last day, uh, I distinctly remember, <laughs> you know, all my, my colleagues wishing me luck. And uh, some of them were on that first 37 person email list. They knew <laughs> uh, and I distinctly remember it was a Thursday. I drove straight from Boulder, uh, dropped off my stuff at my house and drove down to Silverton for an avalanche class. And Silverton received over 60 inches of snow that weekend. And I was <laughs> one of the people through Red Mountain Pass before the road closed to get in there. And I just thought... I don't know if this whole thing is going to work, but it is pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> You'll take that five feet of powder. Yep. So you make this big decision and you commit. How long until you were you were like, okay, this was the right decision. This is working. What were those few first few years like and how long did it take to catch on? Uh, I ate a lot of Chipotle. Uh <laughs> both because it was good, cheap, and sometimes in the afternoon, I didn't know what to do because the tasks were so daunting. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it, right? Entrepreneurship sounds uh, incredible. And if you love what you do and are in it for the long term and for the right reasons, uh, which is why a lot of people are in the ski industry, uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, but I don't think I got to a place where I felt comfortable with the business running from year to year and it not just being a fluke for five plus years. Um, now I think, again, I move at the speed of molasses. So people could have maybe seen the success earlier than I did. Uh, but when you start out with nothing and you're kind of hanging on one contract uh, for somebody that's going to pay you to write or pay you to do a video or something while I'm trying to get the platform off the ground, uh, you know, you can kind of see the downside pretty clearly. So it took a long, long time. And I remember talking to a friend at the time, just saying, and they said, you know, well, what do you want out of this? I was like, I just want enough money to, you know, live <laughs> basically and survive. And it took um, a while, you know, I had that because my cost of living was low, but also uh, it took me a long time to get back to the income level uh, that I had, you know, been in, in the, in the previous job. Now, funny enough though, at this time I had started forecasting in 2007, just on a whim. And it turns out that two other people around the West had just started forecasting on a whim also in 2007, uh, a guy named Brian Allegretto in Tahoe, uh, on a blog called Tahoe Weather Discussion, and a guy named Evan Thayer in Utah on a blog called Wasatch Snow Forecast. None of us knew each other. We all started almost at the exact same time, and uh, it was only after a few readers had told me, like, hey, I follow this guy in Tahoe, you should probably check him out, that I realized, oh, there's other people here, and maybe this is beyond me and beyond Colorado. And then something clicked, which is I had watched Surfline, which uh, for, for people that aren't uh, familiar with it, Surfline is a snow surf forecasting website. And, but before they were a website and app in probably the seventies, they were literally a call-in line, hence the Surfline. Um, but they were a condition-based forecasting company, right? Just on surf, not snow. But they had pulled together a really nice business model. Uh, I had been in touch with them. Uh, they had offered me some, some early advice and encouragement. Uh, and so all this stuff kind of coalesced and, and helped me think a little bit bigger than, you know, Joel just telling some friends uh, where to ski in Colorado. 
it's so interesting that you that the three of you started doing this at the same time and it could be a coincidence but it could be this sort of technological inflection point where all the tools become available to be able to do certain things at a in a sort of low cost scalable way i know just with my whole project for example the advent of substack which is basically a no tech solution they take care of all the tech and and let writers write and, and do the, the podcasting really easy. I wouldn't have been able to do it without all of that. And this has allowed me to create a product and a business that scales up very rapidly with, with basically zero startup costs other than my time. I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering how this all plays into the technological advances of that era. And, and in particular, Joel, there's a number of weather forecasting models that exist. And they put this information out for free. And and I'm wondering, is that, does the rise of OpenSnow and these other weather forecasting services around 2007, does that at all correspond with these sorts of weather tools coming online and and maybe making that information available in a way that could then be studied? Or or was there something else at play that that made this maybe more than a coincidence? Yeah, I follow um, uh, kind of a, a mentor um, who often mentions that a, a lot of your good fortune is just the luck of, you know, being born when and where you were, right? So of course I worked hard and, and did all that stuff, blah, 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 blah. But uh, a lot of this is just luck, as you said, at the right time, at the right place. And sure, I could maybe see it and, and pull it together in a decent way. Um, but yes, in, in the 07, 08, 09 period, the tech was sufficiently uh, mature that sure for 50 bucks in hosting a year and a little bit of knowledge and and work and bang my head against the wall, I could throw up a block. And then uh, I knew of a couple websites that were showing weather model data that they weren't doing that a few years previously. So these things kind of come together. If it was five to 10 years earlier than that, I probably would have had to raise money and, and spend a million dollars on my own servers. And if it was five to 10 years after that, Maybe the weather information was so ubiquitous, multiple people would have been doing this and, and there would have been, you know, a, a large competition for market share or something like that. So I, it, it is just pure good fortune, I think, with just a, a hint of vision that, yeah, in the 07, 08, 09, 10 timeframe, the, the tech to reach people was getting cheaper and more accessible and the weather modeling was becoming <laughs> accessible. When I first started school at Penn State, we're literally getting weather charts off of, uh, you know, fax machines basically. Wow. <laughs> and so, you know, 10 years later, it's all online. You can look at it all um, on your phone. And I know that kind of sounds dated and, and old, but that is probably the genesis for why myself, Brian and Evan independently just wanted to do this thing <laughs> at almost <laughs> the same time. So help us understand what that world looks like, Joel. What are, because I see these terms thrown around all the time, GFS, Euro, NWS, I know it's National Weather Service, but frankly, I don't really understand what those are, what the difference is between between them. So give us a little orientation here. What are the big publicly available weather services? And then as much as you can without getting into your proprietary formulas, how do you take that and turn it into something that's micro-specific to, say, the Poconos, which has, you know seven or eight ski areas and, you know, the, the local weather 
station just says like six inches here, but we all know those mountains have very different aspects and elevations and ways that they catch and keep and retain snow. So, so what, what's out there? And then how do you then hone that information into the product that open snow is? Yeah. So let me first um, start out by saying that modern meteorology, whether you get your information on open snow, other apps, TV, anything is a miracle of cooperation and uh, funding from taxpayers like us all around the world. So mm. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, it's just the Weather Channel or AccuWeather or, or Dark Sky or Open Snow. No, it is you, <laughs> dear mm. listener that is listening to this, that has paid your taxes uh, because you, you might not like where all of your tax money goes, but part of it goes to funding the infrastructure that is the foundation for weather forecasting. Without the radars, without the satellites, without people in our government coordinating with governments all over the world, there would be no modern weather forecasting, hmm. period. So we can't just put up a few weather balloons over the United States or put up a few radars and make a good forecast. Well, where does our weather come from? In the United States, it comes from the West. Well, there's the Pacific Ocean, so and there's not many people living on the Pacific Ocean, so you need satellites to measure it. Satellites cost billions of dollars, so uh, at least they used to. Now, now they're getting a little bit more, <laughs> you know, a little cheaper. But uh, the the satellites that we rely on, um, even still, are are billion dollar um, endeavors. And where does the weather come from before <laughs> the Pacific Ocean? Well, over Asia. So we better know what's happening over Asia. Where's it come before that? Well, Europe. So we better know what's happening there. I mean, that's just one example. So it is a global cooperation, the scale of which I, I don't think most people understand that all of this data has to be shared and it's called assimilated. All of this data from the radars and ground stations and, uh, and satellites and aircraft. Yes, the aircraft that you fly on is also sending back weather data that goes into these uh, computer forecast models. All of it comes together multiple times a day. It is all thanks to a public investment in science and global cooperation. So I want to, I mean, this sounds kind of like a PSA, but like I want to make that very, very clear because I just don't think that that aspect of weather forecasting is understood at all. And so it's very important to understand that this is uh, a, a common endeavor. And if we just shut down all of the government you know, weather collection, we have nothing. And the Weather Channel would have, you know, very, very little, <laughs> let's call it. Um, and, and so I know that there's some exceptions and there's a, a weather company that's going to put up a few satellites in space and there are more weather companies doing some of their own, own work. But still, the foundation is governments around the world. Okay. End of PSA, but I need to make that very, <laughs> very, very, very clear um, that I am not, you know, God's gift or something to weather forecasting. And, and we all rely um, on, on what we've all accomplished together. Okay. So that out of the way, what is, what is going on here? <laughs> right? Like how, how can, how are we forecasting either accurately or inaccurately a storm uh, a week, sometimes 10 days into the future? Uh, well, what's happening is these computer models, and, and that sounds black boxy. What the heck is a computer model? It's just a fancy computer program. It's really, at its core, no different than an app on your phone, uh, Microsoft Word on your computer, your browser. Uh, it, it's just a bunch of code <laughs> that <laughs> takes data in and spits other data out. That is it. But that code is physics and math equations that describe how the atmosphere works. Mm -hmm. That's it. So... Uh, so these computer models 
These computers ingest all of the radar data, all the satellite data, all the aircraft data, all the weather balloons, anything you, it can get its hands on, and then runs it through math and, math and physics equations and outputs numbers. <laughs> That's it. It doesn't output, uh, you know, the forecast at Stewart's house or the temperature at Stewart's house will be 23 degrees on, you know, January 12th. That's not exactly what it does, but it does output some numbers. And uh, to make this achievable uh, and not just outputting numbers at, say, Joel's house or Stewart's house, it, uh, these forecast models, these computer programs, cover the world in a grid. So think about like covering the world in almost transparent graph paper or something like that. So that there's there's just a grid across the world. And then also do that vertically. So there's there's graph paper covering the world right at the surface, but then go up, I don't know, a thousand feet. And then there's another layer of graph paper and go, go up another thousand feet. And there's another layer of graph paper. So you have these boxes. And so what the computer models do is they forecast the weather in each of those boxes for whatever time frame they're programmed to do that one hour in the future, two hours, six hours, 12 hours, 10 days, whatever it might be. And so that's the forecast is these models, these computer programs forecast all of, uh, all of the data you might want as a meteorologist or as just a normal person uh, in these boxes all over the world. And so, uh, and, and then to your question, okay, well, that's fine. But what the heck is the Euro? What's the GFS? What is the, you know, insert Canadian model, whatever. Well, what this is, is they're just different versions of a weather forecast model. So the American model, the GFS, it's called the Global Forecast System, was developed by a bunch of American scientists and run here in America, and it forecasts the weather globally, all across the globe. The European model was created by a bunch of European scientists, <laughs> and, uh, and it forecasts the weather all over the world. And the Canadian model was created by a bunch of Canadian scientists. I mean, you see where this is going, right? So, right. Uh, so, but why are the forecasts different? Well, the forecasts are different because each model takes the data in in a little bit different ways. Maybe one model has more satellite data and another model has a little bit more radar data or another model guesses at what the weather is between the radars in a different way. Um, and then they have somewhat different math and physics equations that they run based on how they think that the atmosphere works. And that is why these different models provide different forecasts. Whew, there's your meteorology 101 <laughs> and 201. So everyone has access to that. I have access to that, but I can't do what Open Snow does. So, so how do you take that and apply it to what we all care about, everyone listening to this podcast, which is how much is it going to snow at my mountain? Yep. So remember those grid boxes. Those grid boxes on a, for a global model, model that covers the globe, might be, uh, say, 10 miles by 10 miles on each side. Well, think about just putting a box over the ground that's 10 miles wide by 10 miles wide. There's a lot of variation in there, especially in the West. You could have a valley at 7,000 feet and a peak at 13,000 feet <laughs> and a bunch of those all within a 10-mile grid box. So, But the model just spits out one number for that grid box, one temperature one amount of precipitation, one wind speed. So it's up to us to combine the models and tease out of the models because there's a lot of data there, um, how we, uh, and basically adjust the models um, for elevation and the exact location of the mountain. And so that has taken, you know, a decent bit of work. And that is also why that adjustment is why you will see a different forecast from whatever app you use on your phone 
to open snow to the local TV forecast because everybody is making that adjustment or going from that grid at graph paper to a local forecast in slightly different ways. So that that's the adjustment. And how much of your time and effort is spent getting those adjustments right? And as you go over time, how much of that have you been able to automate? And how much still needs a human to put it through that lens of that local knowledge and these sort of micro fluctuations in the terrain and in the weather and in the direction and everything else to get this right? Yeah, it's, it's uh, the, the human in the loop is, is a good question. So when I first started doing this, uh, I had two, two, two products that people understood on my, my old website and my blog. One was a, a couple paragraph write up uh, where I just, it was me writing about what I saw and, and where the power would be. The other was a day and night forecast out to seven plus days of how much snow was going to fall at every ski area across Colorado. So for a number of years, almost a decade, I hand, I mean, I looked at all these models and then I hand <laughs> keyed in one to two, two to four, three to six, <laughs> four to eight, you know, based on pulling all of this stuff together in my head. And, right. and part, part of it was just looking at the models and saying, Hey, I'm going to ballpark this. Well, this doesn't look reasonable, but this thing looks reasonable. And part of it also was what I was trying to figure out, like, why did Vale get so much snow when my friend's uncle looked up into the sky and thought it would snow more? And it did. And I thought it didn't. Like, what happened there? Or why did Steamboat get four feet of snow in the early season when none of the models did? So I tried to put some of that in there. But this was all going on in my brain. And uh, and, and a mentor of mine mentioned, I, I was kind of proud that I was doing this uh, years ago. And, and he mentioned, he's like, you know what your brain is? It's a computer. So if you've programmed your brain to do this, you should be able to program a computer to do this. And, and it's not that simple, <laughs> but, but, but the concept is right. Uh, so uh, the, in the last couple of years, we have developed, uh, I, mean, I don't want to say it's just Joel's brain, but we've all worked together um, to figure out, you know, how to, uh, how to do this and how to pull all this modeling data together and, and do it in, a, in an automated way. So now the forecast that you see on OpenSnow is 100% automated. All of that is behind the scenes and, and there's no human in the loop. Now, I'm not going to say that that's perfect. There's a lot of stuff still that I would say we're at kind of version one of okay. take our brains and, and, and this is, you know, forecast, all of us forecasters and put it into the computer. Um, there are version two, three, four, five, six that I can't wait to do <laughs> that you know may not make m massive differences, but will be uh, potentially the differences between or, or try to cover that day and figure out why did Steamboat get that surprising amount of snow? I still don't think that we've had that, that we put that in there um, as well as we could. And so there's a lot of things that we can do, uh, but that's, that's how we've, we pulled this together. And I think some people are kind of surprised that, wait, you don't, you know, key in the forecast anymore. It was like, but it's so much more powerful <laughs> when, when Joel, because I, you know, I can't infinitely increase the number of, of locations. And while there's, you know, something on the order of 28 skiers or 30 skiers in Colorado, you know, people are skiing and snowboarding and hiking at, at infinite locations <laughs> across the state. So, so having it in an automated way now allows us uh, to get forecasts for literally any point that you want it. I mean, that's a really interesting technical evolution and the way you laid that out really shows how far the company has come. Uh, one thing that I, I, I want to focus on here for a minute is not only has your technology and your model gotten better, but you've really scaled it up. So 
it's one thing to do this for Colorado, which is a big but still contained state. And it's another thing to scale it up around the country and then around the world. So talk about that process, because I imagine that there was a point where you're friendly with these guys in Tahoe and friendly with these guys in Utah, and, and you could just leave it to them. But you didn't. You expanded Open Snow. So talk about the decision to expand beyond Colorado and what it's taken to scale up in that way. Well, remember, I moved at the speed of molasses. So so this all (laughs) took quite a long time. Uh, I mean, I'm kidding, but not kidding, right? Like there there are faster ways to do this, uh, potentially to raise more money or be more aggressive, but uh, that's not what we did. And so these discussions, my discussions with Brian, my discussions with Evan evolved over years. Uh, and, and the thing that made this whole thing possible is our deep, 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 100% passion for meteorology and powder and the fascination we have for it. None of us did this purely as, hey, there's a business opportunity here. Let's just do this. Uh, if we did that, I'm not saying that just going into business for a business opportunity is bad. I mean, we live in a capitalist country and this is working out, you know, definitely not perfectly, but on, on the balance, it's working out okay. Uh, but you know, for us, what first and foremost has bound us is is a common love of the weather. So anytime we had these difficult discussions like, hey, maybe we should join forces and how does this look and, and ownership of the business or, or just, you know, compensation and things like that. Sometimes those are tricky conversations and often they're tricky, uh, but ultimately it came down to we, we had this shared goal of, of doing something that was awesome, doing what we loved and, and, and helping more more people. So I kind of saw the uh, the Surfline model, where they have pulled, you know, more forecasters together, and also just realized that, you know, the internet is a time of scale, and having this business be successful is a time of scale. And by the way, what is a successful business? Well, a successful business is having enough money, you know, in profits to be able to to continue to challenge ourselves and improve the business, right? So, so you know, making money is a real goal. Here, I think some people get caught up in the outdoor world and thinking, well, it's just passion and I just want to be out there a hundred percent. Don't don't confuse this, that, that I'm not passionate about what I do. Uh, and that's why I stay up late at night and wake up early in the morning and obsess over all of this. But also you need, you need money to make this whole thing work. So, you know, one person in Tahoe, one person in Utah, one person in Colorado uh, just doesn't have the audience that all three of us combined could have had. Right. So that was that was the pitch. Like we could probably make more money, have more of an impact, do cooler things with the technology if we all got together and and made this thing work. So um, that happened. And then also, like none of us were great developers necessarily. So uh, in the early days, I literally went to every business meetup I could in Boulder. Uh, I even advertised on Craigslist. Uh, I was looking for a developer to to help me and I understood what we needed, but I was not the developer to do it. And we were really fortunate that I I met a meteorologist and developer here in Boulder named Andrew Murray, who, (laughs) uh, I I mean, this is just another one of those good fortune things is he had a full-time job, but I said, Hey, listen, I can only pay you half of your current salary, but you know, what's cool about a company that we, we run, we can work whenever we want. And he really liked and continues to like uh, travel. So that was a pretty good deal um, for him that you could be on a plane and do anything you wanted, but we just needed to, to get this site up and running. So we kind of cobbled it together and Andrew and I worked to, together for almost um, 10 years and we split amicably about a year ago, just doing different things. But but there's just these series of, of challenges, semi-accidents, um, but also some vision and some persistence 
uh, to tie it all together. And then, you know, as we got a little bit bigger, uh, I hired somebody that could run advertising sales because people were knocking on our door saying we want to advertise on open snow. And I had no idea how to handle that. And then there was a student that I mentored here at the University of Colorado when he was a senior that never left me alone. He just kept asking for work. Um, and he's Sam and he's effectively running, uh, you know, a lot of logistics and, and of the company now and, and forecasting. And so we just evolved. I mean, this word is likely overused, but but very organically. And there were just kind of seminal moments where he looked around and said, we need a new developer or we need an app developer to just take it to the next level. And we just waited until we had the resources to do that uh, and then kept expanding. So if, if you want to appreciate the scale of Open Snow, go to the website and click over to the map and you'll see every ski area in the world that Open Snow provides coverage for. Now, you don't cover every ski area in the world. There's for example, several hundred ski areas in China, and those are not on the map. And there's ski areas in Scotland, and those are not on the map. So how do you decide where to expand into, and why have you not expanded into certain regions? Not necessarily the ones that I just mentioned, but but why are there regions that you just said, you know what, it's it's either not worth it, or we don't have access to the information, or there's the, the, the model doesn't work there? Yeah, the it, it was only in the last six to 12 months that we've kind of finished version one of our own internal uh, modeling that can work globally. So mm -hmm. before that, it was kind of a very different system that we were cobbling together uh, from different vendors. And now we are in control of it and we created it. So uh, the only reason right now that you don't see every ski area in the world is that we just haven't entered it into the system yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so oh, we're just wow. picking, okay. we're just picking off, uh, uh, countries and regions. Uh, and, and if there's a region you don't see on there yet, it's just, we just haven't gotten to it, but the model, uh, will work just as well or just as poorly, <laughs> um, <laughs> any, anywhere globally. So by the end of this season, and, and just to put a timestamp on that, it's 2022, 2023, you know, we should have most of the ski areas in the world entered in. And the other thing we just released is this feature called forecast anywhere, because now that the model works globally, even if you don't see a ski area somewhere, but you want to ski um, in China, I'm not sure if you're able to get into China, but for those people in China, <laughs> um, you know, if you want to ski in China or somewhere where we don't have a ski area coverage, uh, just tap on the map and you will get the same quality data as if we had a ski area point there and you can just favorite that point uh, and save that. And then that also works for your favorite backcountry spot or, you know, your house or, or anything like that. So uh, that is just a, you know, smaller team moving a little slower, uh, but we are working to get every ski area uh, known in the world in there. And we're also quite responsive. So if people say, hey, there's a ski area here and you've added all of them around them, but you forgot this one, uh, people can just email us and we'll, uh, we'll add it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more there, Joel, about the evolution of the product, because I, I think what, we, what we're living in is an era of constant upgrades and improvements, which is not how things were 30 or 40 years ago. You know, you'd You'd buy a Nintendo in 1985, and the same product was still on sale in 1988 with no substantive improvements in it, right? But nowadays, you buy a video game system, and they're constantly sending you new upgrades, and it's just the way the world works. So, so talk about the evolution of Open Snow because when you when you launched this product, the world was different. We weren't necessarily in a mobile first world, for example. And 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 as your model has gotten better, you've been able to focus as you just said, not just on ski areas, but basically on anywhere where it snows. 
So talk about how you've had to adapt to the marketplace and how OpenSnow has grown and changed as a piece of technology and as a consumer facing product over these past 10, 11 years, however long you want to go back. Yeah, I, you know, there's all this, this talk about kind of hard charging, um, you know, business people and, you know, only the paranoid survive um, and all this stuff. But, but ultimately when it's a product and and so I don't look at it as that, uh, you know, as a competition, like I must win or else. (laughs) Um, But our upgrades, our changes are mostly driven by pure passion and excitement to leverage so much technology around us to answer people's questions that they're emailing in and saying, well, I want to forecast here, or, you know, what's it going to be like here? Or can you adjust what you do here? And the answer almost universally is, yeah, we can do that. Like it just, it takes some time, but that's a great idea. And let, let's do this. And so we have a, a list a mile long, um, which drives us uh, to keep updating the product and just making it better. Not, you know, just not for press releases or anything like that, but just because we all use this ourselves. You know, everybody that is building this is using this product every day. I use this product every day. It's not like I built, you know, open <laughs> snow for, for the masses. And then I have some secret thing that I go to, you know, on the side or something like that. Like I use this product. And if there's weather data that I'm looking at that isn't available in, in open snow yet, like I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, how can we get this in there over the next months or years um, so that people understand it because like, I, I don't want to have some special thing that I'm looking at that other people uh, can't. There's just so much um, fun data out there. So to start out, you know, on the evolution of the the business and and how we make money. Which, by the way, uh, when I uh, when I woke up that morning and decided I was going to quit my job, uh, I called my dad and he he said, "Well, I support you 100, percent and uh, you've always made you know pretty good decisions." And uh, I just, I just have one question. And I, said, and I said, yeah, what's that? Said, How are you gonna make money at this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good question. So uh, we, we started out making money just, I, I was, I was just doing any consulting work that I could to, to pay the bills. Open Snow was making very little money um, from advertisements on, on Google AdWords or AdSense. Uh, and so I would, I would just write for Ski Magazine or Skiing Magazine or do videos for honestly competing websites. Um, just because they were paying me and I, I needed the money. But eventually we had enough traffic where advertisers, again, like I said, were, were knocking on our door. So we started figuring out how to sell sell advertising. And then almost 10 years ago now, I think it was 2013, 2014, I distinctly remember having a meeting with uh, an advertising agency that represented a very big brand. And we were making not very much money back then. So the head of this advertising agency was extremely excited um, to meet me and say, oh my gosh, we want to work with you. Like I want, I want all of your inventory. Like, this is just incredible. Like we've, we've got to make this happen. And I, you know, I went out from this conference and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is a turning point in the company. And then I had a call with their, their media buyer uh, a couple days later and went over everything. And, you know, this is the first time I've done this, but I kind of felt like this is a slam dunk, like the head of the ad agency, which you know, really wants to do this. Like, let's do this. And then of course, reality set in, which was uh, the media buyer said, well, we're kind of late in the game. Uh, you know, you're on the smaller side of the of sites that we work with. So uh, I don't know if anything's available this year, you know, I'll let you know, but um, uh, you know, let's just stay in touch. And I just remember I, I, I was at a coffee shop where I took the call and I remember walking home 
and you know, I went through all the emotions, you know, of grief, right? Yeah. Um, but 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 it ended with, well, advertising's still fine, but I don't control it, and we're kind of at the whim of the market. And you know, since then we've learned quite a bit about how to um, you know create a product that advertisers like and, and see a good return on. But but ultimately we don't control it; it's still you know somebody else's decision. And they said, we got to start a subscription product. Like we just have to be in control of at least some part of our business, our revenue stream. Um, and so we, we built that product. And for most of time until late 2021, I would call the subscription product a really nice to have, but not required. So most of the value of OpenSnow was freely accessible, even as an anonymous user, you didn't have to log in. Uh, you could just come, you could read the daily snow, you could, which is the local forecast um, written by the local forecaster. You could see a forecast for the next five days. And so we had a number of features that people enjoyed and that paid for, but the subscription I would still call kind of a, a, a niche type thing. And we just made the decision in late 2021 to say, okay, we've been at this thing for 10 years and we work our, our, our butts off and we really like what we do. And we think that there's, you know, a lot of people out there that are not paying us, but probably get a lot of value out of this. And if yes. we kind of said, Hey, you know, would you pay us? They would, most of them or a lot of them would probably say, yeah, I guess. And a few of them would probably say, I'm not paying for, for a weather app. And, and that's fine. Like we're, we're not everything to everybody, but we, we decided to go effectively all in on the subscription side for two reasons. One, it, it's just, it's a more stable business model. Um, but two, you know, it's important as a small team, and I don't think this gets talked about enough um, in terms of business success. People think about business success as just making more, more and more money. But to have the people on the team to, to do cool stuff, we all have to feel challenged and excited. And if we're doing the same thing year after year and not pushing forward, it's not very exciting. And then people, you know, won't want to work <laughs> doing this stuff and will look for other challenges uh, where they can be more impactful. So, so part of this was saying, well, hey, let's, you know, let's see if all these people that are not paying, you know, value what we do enough um, to pay. And if they do, we're going to feel this real, you know, shot in the arm to say, okay, people super value this. And we kind of knew that they did, but now they, you know, we're really working directly for these people. And, um, and that gives us a lot more motivation. So we did that uh, in December, 2021, flip the switch. Uh, I would say 10 years before that, if we did that, I would have had sleepless nights and be super concerned um, because I can tell you at the early stages of open snow, when I got one email of somebody who was pissed off about something, it affected me for hours and sometimes days. Uh, I just couldn't, like, it was, it was just hard, right? It was a small thing. Um, and and one negative email was just was, was just killing me. And I had a friend who was in in business for thirty years, who I was ch I was actually chasing powder at Wolf Creek with him. Uh, when a negative email came in, he could just tell that I was just you know super bummed. And this, this was a decade ago. And he said, "Guess what? There's a, tens of thousands of people reading this. There's always a few people that just aren't going to like it. Let's go get a margarita." And I was like, "Oh." Okay, I guess. Now, mm. it took me about 10 years to internalize that. Um, that was not an overnight internalization. Uh, but at this point, and it's not to say that, you know, we don't work really hard when people have complaints uh, or, or, or just dismiss it, but we just realize that we're not everything to everybody. Not everybody's going to pay. That's fine. But we're working really hard. And, and at this point, we saw a great uptake in subscriptions. And we were also able to preserve a lot of the, and actually grow the advertising revenue because we moved all of that into our email newsletter. So previously the advertising revenue was kind of split between our email newsletter, our website, and our app. 
but we just took all of that out, out of the website and the app to make a cleaner experience for users. But we still have this very popular Monday, Wednesday, Friday email newsletter that would go out, uh, which has weather stories and stories about other things in skiing. Um, and so we were able to preserve the advertising in that and also focus on the subscription um, on the app and the website. So I, you know, it was a lot of work by the team and they were, I want to say sleepless nights, but a lot of nervous nights <laughs> to see how this, this would all work. Cause it, you know, it's a little bit of a bet the company type thing, not exactly, but, but getting kind of toward that. Uh, but it worked out really, really well. And now I am just um, through the moon, you know, over the moon, I guess is what you could say. And as is the team, we're just so excited um, to have a great product that works for advertisers and also to work um, directly um, for, for skiers that, that want to support us and, uh, and can understand what we're doing is a little bit different than what they can get elsewhere. So how well did that switch to subscription model go? And what does that mean for the future of open snow? Yeah, I, it, you know, not in exact terms, but it, it, it nearly 2x'd um, our subscriptions year, year over year, which, which is impactful for a small company like ours. Uh, now in uh, November of 2022, we have seven full-time people, roughly 10 contractors. So I would say that that switch to subscription um, has given us the confidence to know that this is a long-term and growing success. And it already was, but it was just, it didn't quite have the foundation that we now have with, with the subscription. Um, and also has given us the confidence to probably over time, remember I move at molasses speed, uh, you know, to hire a few more people over time, knowing that we can do a lot with a small team and we don't need to, you know, be a, a massive team. Um, but it has given us the confidence to say, well, hey, we can have backup for some, <laughs> you know, some job functions that we have here. Um, so we're, we don't have, you know, a single point of failure and things like that. So it's going to allow us to mature as a company. And it's allowing me to finally, you know, 10, 15 years in to to go from a uh, conservative mindset and a preservation mindset to a little bit more of an aggressive mindset. And I don't, I don't mean aggressive in terms of just make more money. I mean, aggressive and like, let's try to accomplish all these things that are on our long, long list um, that can help skiers and people um, recreating outside uh, versus just kind of, um, you know, plot along and not get as much done. So but we're just, <laughs> we're, we're pumped. We're, we're excited. And, and there is probably no better feeling than working really, really hard on something. And whether that's, you know, a story that you write or a product like this and having somebody read it and enjoy it or, or you know, pay for it. Um, that's just ultimately, I mean, that's from the dawn of time, right? When the first businesses started, but there is really no better feeling than to work really hard and try to contribute a work product that people find valuable enough, uh, enough to pay for. Gosh, well, I, I can't tell you, this is all resonating so much for me and with me because of the experience I've had with the storm. And, you know, I want to acknowledge that we are living in the subscription era and consumers have subscription fatigue. I, I know it. I have it. Everyone has it. And it can be tiring to get asked for $5 every time you turn around. I get that. Yeah. Which, which is why I think you have to be real careful that when you're asking for money, you're providing something of real value, which I think Open Snow does, and which is what I've tried to do with the storm. And it's, it's challenging when you're coming out of nowhere and starting a platform, as you know. And for two and a half years, I did it completely for free. And Substack, and one of the reasons I chose this platform is it makes it very easy to, with the snap of a finger, a couple button clicks, you can turn on paid subscriptions. But I really hesitated to do it because I wanted to make sure that what I was doing was valuable to people, was unique, was interesting. And it was, it was 
I was so nervous when I finally did it. And credit to you, you were one of the folks who encouraged me to do it, to make this thing sustainable. Because the truth is, I still have a full-time job. It's my day job. And I, I couldn't balance both things forever. And I still can't balance both things forever. But at least turning on the subscriptions turned the storm into a small business. And it made it sustainable. And it showed me, okay, this is something that people will pay for. And it, it's, it was so validating and so motivating and so empowering. And it fired me up so much to try and create something better. So I, I, really, I really hear what you're saying. And I really relate to a lot of it. And I, and I really think that the, the era of free internet is, is really fading. And, and if people want quality content, they're really going to have to get into a mindset where they're willing to pay for it. And as long as there are people who are creating something that really you, you can't get anywhere else. And, and I think that's what you're doing. And, and I'm, I'm so pumped to hear that that worked out for you. And I really relate to it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm excited to hear that it's, it's working for you. And it's, it's often a slog, but again, it goes in the right direction. I think something that I, I noticed too, is one of the uh, members of our team, Sam, who I talked about, who is the undergrad that I, I mentored, and then he, mm-hmm. he didn't leave me alone. And Everyone about, loves Sam. Yeah, Sam's a good dude. He's a good <laughs> dude. Uh, he's also a ripping snowboarder and can ski. Oh, too. really? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I can't do both. but um, <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. He, yeah, and, and, he, and he beats me on the uphill by about 2x, but that's, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but one of the things I noticed is he he's about a decade younger um, than me. And when he's talking to his friends – they just have a different take on, you know, yeah, if it's valuable, I'll pay for it, you know, which is a little bit different than my generation and the older generation. Like, I mean, those, like we will pay for things, but we didn't quite grow up with it like younger folks did. So that doesn't mean that everybody's going to pay for everything. And yes, there's fatigue, but you could just kind of see this groundswell of people understanding that, yeah, <laughs> you, you, if it's good, um, you pay for something and it, and it gives you value. And, you know, I only pay for a handful of apps and things, but those things are really valuable to me. And here's the other thing. And we, we noticed this personally on the things that we pay for. And we also noticed it in, in open snow. When we made this switch in December of 2021, uh, we were really wondering what, what it did is it meant that if you were just going to the app or the website and had never created an account or done anything, you wouldn't be able to see anything. You would have to create an account and you would get a free trial. And, and if you wanted a longer free trial, you just email us and we'll give you a longer free trial. I mean, we're very liberal in that end. Um, <laughs> but, but you can't just go to it anymore. So everybody who just bookmarked the Colorado Daily Snow and wanted Joel's forecast couldn't just like that link would then save start a free trial. So we were thinking that, wow, you know, our sessions and our traffic will probably go way down because we're blocking a lot of these people um, from coming uh, to the app and to the website. But amazingly, Sessions were about equal year mm. over year. And so, yes, there are fewer people because, you know, not everybody paid or started a, 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 a trial and, and that's fine. Um, but the people, when you pay for something or even when you think about paying for something, you often value it more and start going more. And we found that people were discovering features that we had had for years, but they just never <laughs> looked at yeah. because they just did one thing. And then when they were forced to kind of check out more things to see if it was worthwhile to them, they were like, oh my gosh, we have all of these things. Uh, yeah, I'm going to pay for this. And this is super cool. So it, it just creates, there's plenty of niches <laughs> um, out there that are big enough to create a real business, you know, maybe not a Facebook, maybe not a Twitter, maybe not a TikTok, you know, those are generational type companies, but companies that are plenty big 
for one or a handful of people to have plenty of success at and to impact the world. Um, and it's just amazing. Again, just a good fortune of timing that we live in this world where you can turn on a subscription, you know, with a click. We're a little different because we're across <laughs> platforms and not all this legacy stuff. So it, it took quite a bit of work. Um, but but yes, you you can do it now, and it's it, it's amazing and it's a treat. And I, I just want to I want to mention like you know sometimes these these issues around money get a little sticky, and 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 some people understand it, and some people say, well, I should just do it for the passion. I think we're all doing it <laughs> for the passion, but, but there can be the Venn diagram overlap, right? Like I have the yes. passion and I also want to make money and be validated at, at providing this product. And I, I am just so excited. And I think our team is excited that we are doing this. Um, and we, we were able to bootstrap it and, and the ski community is just so um, supportive. And when they see a technology or a service that brings them value, you know, they tell their friends for a long, 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 long time. We spent almost zero money on advertising and it was all just word of mouth on chairlifts and, and friends telling friends. Um, and that's just um, it's I don't know, it's just it's fun to be part of that that type of community. I'm so fired up that it's working, Joel. All right, let's have some fun. Let's end the podcast today with a talk about weather, because honestly, I, I will say this like I can barely tell if it, it's raining outside, if I'm standing underneath it without an umbrella. So I, I am a weather idiot, which is one reason why I really like open snow and really respect what you're doing. So let's start with this. We keep hearing 22 to 23 is a La Nina year. What does that mean? How will that impact our ski conditions based upon where we are in the country in theory? Yeah. Thank you. Great <laughs> qualifier. La Nina doesn't mean it's going to snow or it's not going to snow or it's going to rain or any of those things. La Nina simply means that an area in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is colder than average. The water temperatures in the middle of the Pacific Ocean are colder than average. Why, you know, why does that matter when you're thinking about ski conditions in Colorado or British Columbia or New York? Well, it matters because uh, the change in water temperatures in that in the central Pacific Ocean change the amount of thunderstorms that form over the equator and thunderstorms if there's more or, or, or less of them, will change the kind of overall atmospheric flow. And so with a La Nina, which is colder than average water temperatures, or an El Nino, which is warmer than average water temperatures, you get some degree of changing changes in the storm track, uh, especially over North America, but other places too. Uh, and that can favor some places versus others for more or less snow. So for a La Nina year, there's few absolutes but there's a high, high, high probability that the Pacific Northwest will see greater than average snowfall. Uh, that means British Columbia, Washington, maybe Oregon, Northern Idaho, Western Montana, maybe Northern Wyoming. That is a pretty good correlation. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. You move to other areas and the correlations are not as strong. And there's a bunch of other things that come into play, many of which are not well forecastable months in advance. So, and also, you know, while I say that, hey, it looks like a certain area like the Pacific Northwest will have above average snowfall, even saying that with a high degree of confidence uh, doesn't mean we know which month or which week or which day or which mountain, you know, will have the most snow. So La Nina is interesting, but you know why you mostly hear about La Nina in the fall? Because it's the only factor that or it's one of the only factors that governs kind of overall weather patterns that is semi-predictable three to six months out as we're all gearing up for ski season. So it's not a perfect predictor, but you hear about it because it's a predictor that we kind of know about. 
All right, so we're sitting here, we're recording this on November 17th, and as it happens, so far, the West has seen just an awesome early season, and just about every major mountain of note from Colorado on West and North opened early for the ski season. In New England, we've had the complete opposite. Killington and Sunday River are cracking open the season today, and they are the first resorts in New England to open. This is very unusual for them. Usually they're open a couple of weeks earlier, if not even in October. So what's going on so far, Joel? How do you explain the early season that we've seen so far? Yeah, bad luck. <laughs> or good luck, depending on where where you're thinking. So so weather is is a series of troughs and ridges, or you can think of them as peaks and valleys, and, and everything generally balances out. So often when the west is getting shellacked with snow, the east is, uh, and that's a trough over the west, uh, then the east has a ridge and it's warmer and drier or maybe wetter. Uh, and then, and that can flip uh, back and forth. So uh, I would say a little bit of bad luck. Now you can dig into all the climate stuff and, uh, or I, I just mean all these factors that kind of govern the flow of weather and, and pick out some, <laughs> some reasons why maybe this would have happened. But, but I'll just say, you know, a lot of this comes down to natural variability and, and bad luck. But we also know that, you know, if you get a trough hanging out over the east for a week or two, you can get a ton of snow making out, you get a couple of natural snow events and you get a lot of terrain um, open. And so hopefully, you know, that's what happens uh, across the nor- the northeast over kind of Thanksgiving and into early December. Um, but but we'll see. <laughs> it's uh, some years and, and most years we, we just don't know. And so I'll often say that we can understand we have some predictable uh, we have some predictive capacity out to about 10 days. That doesn't mean we know exactly a storm's coming, but warmer, drier, wetter, snowy or you know, wetter, snowy or something like that. Colder. It's within about seven days that we're able to start seeing some storms. There's a little bit, uh, there is some possibility where you can see events further out in time, but really beyond about 10 days, uh, it's very hard um, to make any sort of detailed forecast. As you've scaled across the country, is there a region that's particularly tricky in North America? One where you're just like, ah, like we, we missed that. How? Yeah. Uh, so every region is tricky. And, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and, and well, I'll say this because, you know, when I, when I say I'm a meteorologist at, at you know, a party or introducing myself, usually what people, well, people will say one of three things, either, man, I wish I could have a job where I was 50% wrong. Uh, here's, here's, a, here, here's a tip. Just, I mean, I've heard that so many times, just come up with it. I, I'm, you could, it's fine if you want to nag me, but like, just, just be a little bit more creative. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, so there's that somebody, uh, another thing that people often say is, oh, I, if I wasn't X as a profession, I really wanted to be a meteorologist. So there's all this latent um, desire to, to know about the weather. But the third thing is somebody always says, well, you know, I come from this area. It's super tricky. And it's true. There's sea breezes in Florida. There's the fog and marine layer in Southern California. There's snowstorms and microclimates in Steamboat. I mean, all these places have, have tricks. Uh, they're just different. So, you know, in New England, there is the dreaded rain snow line and, and sleet and freezing rain, which will cut down on totals. Um, that's tricky. You know, for me personally, the steamboat surprise, what I alluded to earlier where they can just blow out the top range of the forecast. Uh, it happens occasionally. I know, I think I know what factors contribute to it, but every time you see those factors, it doesn't happen. So there are a lot of the, yeah there are a lot of these things that we could probably solve over time, but it is quite tricky. 
So let's talk about some of these tricks because there's all these micro regions. I mean, the ski areas are where they are for a reason, right? And and they're they're based on a lot of scouting in previous decades when we didn't have all this information. And they're based on really, for the most part, where it snows, where you have good aspects. So the, the one that I alluded to earlier is one of the most interesting to me. And that's Little Cottonwood Canyon <clears throat> and Big Cottonwood Canyon right next door also gets a ton of snow. What's, what's super interesting is not only that Salt Lake City, which is, you know, right there, doesn't get hardly any snow, but also Park City, which is right next to the Cottonwoods, gets about half what they do, maybe 60%, I don't know, depending on the year. Why do the Cottonwoods get so much more snow? And in particular, why does Alta lead all of the Cottonwood resorts in total snowfall in general? Yeah, well, I, I can I can tell you a story about Alta. We chased uh, there, my wife, my son, and I uh, two years ago, which looked like it was going to be a big storm. And of course, you know, I'm going back and forth with that ping pong ball in my head. Should we go? Should we not go? Should we go? Should we not go? We got a three year old. <laughs> like, what am I doing? This is crazy. Um, but we went, and it snowed 65 inches in three days, and we didn't ski because it snowed <laughs> so much that they didn't open uh, anything due to, due to avalanche risk. And then we finally, we finally got out there and, um, my, the, the plan was to drop my son off at, at daycare. They have a wonderful daycare at Alta on the mountain while my wife and I and some friends went and skied powder. And then I would go out and ski with him in the afternoon, uh, when everything was tracked out and groomed. And he just looked at me that morning and said, I'm not going to, to daycare. Like we've been waiting <laughs> three, three days to go ski powder. I'm skiing powder. I was like, dude, there's, there's four feet of snow out there, five feet of snow. And, and you're not even that tall and your skis are tiny and he didn't take no for an answer. So we, we ripped a couple, um, uh, groomer, that. groomer runs with, with, you know, three inches of fluff on the groomer. And then he was completely exhausted. And then I went out and ski powder, but anyway, yes, Alta has uh, a lot of snow. It's one of the snowiest places in, uh, in the lower 48. And you need two things to make snow. Here, here's Meteorology 201. We did 101 with the models before. Here's 201. Just save everybody the trouble of going through a, a meteorology undergrad degree. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Is, uh, there's only two things that you need to make snow. You need moisture and you need lift. You need, that, you need air to start going up. Moisture is kind of self-explanatory. Without moisture, you can't get rain or snow. It can fall out of the clouds. But lift, lift pushes the air up. Air, due to lower pressure, expands. Expanding air cools. And then you allow that rain or snow to effectively condense out of the cloud and fall to the ground. So you need moisture, number one, lift, number two. How do you get lift? Well, there's all sorts of ways in the atmosphere uh, through physics and math to create lift, but the number one way throughout the big mountains of the West and even some bigger mountains in the East is for air to hit a mountain. When air hits a mountain, it can't go into the mountain and it can't go down into the ground. So it gets forced going up. So that's really good. And then on the flip side, air that's going down on the other side of a mountain, that's not so good. The air warms up, dries out, and you don't get as much snow. So if you just kind of picture in your mind's eye the Cottonwood Canyons and, and, and northern Utah, Salt Lake City is on the left, if we're kind of looking at it like north, south, east, west. It's on the left, reasonably flat. And then the air hits the Wasatch Mountains, goes up, uh, oh, what would it be, almost 8,000 feet. So that's a lot of lift. (laughs) So there's not much lift over Salt Lake proper, Salt Lake City, but then the air gets forced up 8,000 feet. So that's a lot of lift. So it dumps a lot of snow up around Alta Snowbird and and also uh, in Big Cottonwood Canyon. And then on the other side of the Cottonwoods, that air starts to descend into Park City by a few thousand feet. And descending air is not so good. 
for snow. So that is why, and, and your numbers are generally correct and it varies every season, but Park City might get 60% plus or minus as much snow um, as Alta. And it's purely because the wind often comes from the west or northwest. It's going up when it gets to Alta, makes a lot of snow, and that wind is going down the other side of the mountain uh, into, into Deer Valley and Park City. Now, there are some patterns that actually give Park City and Deer Valley more snow based on a different wind direction that's not from the west. So, you know, I'm not picking on certain areas and saying what area is better or worse. People want me to always name what is the best place that I've ever skied. Uh, it all depends on how much snow and who I'm with and what are the conditions uh, and all of that. So, you know, the most snow isn't always the best. I was sitting at Alta. I mean, Alta is an amazing mountain and, you know, the epicenter of snow, but also I didn't ski for three days and people in Big Cottonwood and other places in Utah were skiing, right? So like chasing snow is fraught with, um, with challenges. By the way, that, that's not a, you know, reflection of any poor decision-making on the part of Alta or the town of Alta or Snowboard or anything. Sometimes these things just happen. Um, but that is the reasoning why Alta, Snowbird, um, and then uh, over at Brighton and Solitude and the Cottonwoods get more snow on average um, than Park City and Deer Valley on the other side. Well, there's your Cottonwoods primer. All right, let's keep moving with these. Talk about the king, Mount Baker. This may be the lowest, uh, snowiest place in the lower 48. Why? What, what's what's Baker's secret? Let me turn it around to you. What are the two? Yeah, yeah, now we're going to have to pay attention. Sorry. What, uh, <laughs> you're like, oh, you're just ending this podcast with some, with some easy questions. Now we're going for a quiz. So, uh, so there's two ingredients to make snow, lift and moisture. Which one do you think is most important for Baker based on where it's located? Moisture. You got it. It is located close to the Pacific Ocean, which is the best moisture source. There is so Mm. much moisture. So mountains generally closest to the ocean have the possibility of getting a lot of snow because if you get a wind from the west or off the ocean, that's a lot of moisture transported in the air uh, hitting those big mountains. So it is a combination of the most moisture and also the abrupt terrain from the lowlands of uh, you know, northern coastal Washington, north of Seattle, uh, rising up to uh, to Mount Baker. Is Baker the snowiest place in the lower 48? Uh, oh, gosh. I'm not going to be quoted on this because I don't know the stats off the top of my head. It is definitely one of the snowiest, and I believe it holds the record many years ago um, for the most snow in a single season. Um, generally, they can do quite well. Um, the area around kind of Jackson, Targhee can do quite well. The Cottonwoods in Utah can do quite well, and depending on the year, uh, up into British Columbia uh, and certain places can do quite well as well. One place that does less well, and and this kind of surprised me when I really zeroed in on the stats, is Keystone. And sometimes folks will call it a New England ski area stuck in Colorado. It's funny to me because it's in Summit County. It's kind of there between A Basin and Loveland and Copper and Breck, all of which get 300 plus inches a year. Keystone tends to get 250 or less. Why is Keystone get stiff like this? Yeah, it, it, again, it's uh, it's not as much the moisture issue, but the lift. And so the, mm-hmm. the other side of lift is when air goes down, it's not so good. Um, so when you look at a topography map, the area to the west, northwest and northwest of Keystone, which is the direction where the wind usually comes from. So kind of upwind of Keystone is generally lower. You have air descending off the, these mm-hmm. big gore mountains going over kind of Lake Dillon, and then it's starting to rise back up uh, to Keystone, but it's, it's just, there's been a lot of down, <laughs> down <laughs> moving air, whereas the, the other mountains around there, even though they're close geographically, don't quite have the same setup. And a lot of this can be kind of generalized, explainable, like I'm saying now. Sometimes it doesn't matter because 
the main source of lift in the atmosphere is not just air hitting a mountain. Maybe there's other physics in the atmosphere that are creating lift that just hit all the mountains. And so most of those mountains just get the same amount of snow. But that is one reason why Keystone um, can tend to get less. You know, when I first started forecasting out here, there were just a couple of years where Keystone just always got less uh, snow. And I kind of thought that was a given. And then there were some years where they did as well or better based on certain wind directions than other mountains. And so I realized you know, the longer you're in this game, the, the more you see and, and kind of the less confidence you have because you see more of the outliers. <laughs> uh, so I'm always cognizant to, to notice that uh, while Keystone's um, stats aren't always um, the best, there is a reason for that. And there are also situations where they tend to get some pretty good snowfall. All right. You mentioned Tahoe feast or famine earlier. So Tahoe can get a five foot snowstorm. It can go two months without snowing. I, I realize that there are also times when it snow is regularly there, but what's behind the feast or famine in Tahoe? Yeah, this is pretty typical. And you look back at, you know, weather records over thousands, over a thousand years, uh, a big story of the West <laughs> and of California is feast or famine. Um, so this is not a kind of a new situation. Tahoe can get massive amounts of snow because massive amounts of moisture. Uh, right. They are also like Baker close-ish to the Pacific ocean. Um, but often the storm track is, at the intersection where colder air to the north meets warmer air to the south. By the way, that's not exactly why tornadoes form, and I really hate that explanation. People are like, oh, the, the air mass has just clashed, and then a tornado spun out of that. Much more nuanced, complicated, and cooler than that, but I won't go there. That's a different podcast. Um, but often the storm track is where colder air to the north and warmer air to the south meet, and more frequently that is over um, kind of the northern tier of the United States, uh, where that jet stream is and in southern Canada. So storms are just a little bit more frequent up there. When you get more into central United States, Utah, Colorado, Tahoe, it's it's a little bit more lucky. Sometimes the jet stream's down for an extended period of time. Sometimes it's not, uh, but a little bit more feast or famine than up at Baker. And that snow that does fall around Tahoe and in the Pacific Northwest is often, not always, but often heavier than the snow that you'd get in Utah or Colorado. Why is that? Uh, mostly due to temperatures and moisture, uh, but largely the quality of the snow that you're skiing or riding is due to, uh, is governed by temperatures and also uh, by wind to some extent and somewhat by moisture. And so there's a wonderful chart that kind of puts it all together. But if it's uh, warmer, uh, the snow tends to be a little thicker. Um, and it's often with air coming off the Pacific Ocean in Tahoe, often a little warmer. Not always. There are some blower powder days out there um, for sure, but often it's a little bit um, warmer and thicker snow. Whereas in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, often it's a little colder and the snow is a little bit lighter, but not always. <laughs> so Tahoe can get blower. Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Mont uh, you know, Montana and uh, New Mexico can get thick manky snow too. Um, it's just, we're talking about kind of the average, not, you know, what every storm does. One thing to note too, wind is an issue. So if it's very, very windy, those snowflakes that are flying through the air hit each other and the edges of those snowflakes break off. And without those beautiful edges, allowing the snowflakes to stack up with airspace in between, they get tightly um, punched together and pushed together, which makes the snow feel thicker. So if the storm wow. anywhere is really windy, uh, you have less airspace in the snow that falls on the ground and, and therefore the snow feels a little thicker. Oh, wow. That's, that's super interesting. All right. There, so outside of the West, there are, you know, counter to what some folks in the West like to believe there are some good snow bands elsewhere in the country. 
part part of this you see around the Great Lakes where you have all these lake event snow bands and there's several of them coming off each of the Great Lakes and they all sort of work a little bit differently. So just talk about the lake effect snow that comes off the Great Lakes and how that works and and also just what are the differences between those different lake effect bands because you have some off Superior, some off Michigan, some off Erie, some off Ontario and and they all have different strengths and sort of ways that they disperse themselves. Yeah. So the, again, this comes back to moisture and lift. So when cold air flows over a warmer body of water, it picks up moisture. So if you can get that cold air to flow directly over the longest part of the lake at whatever orientation that is, southwest to northeast or north to south, whatever it might be, you pick up the most moisture and then can create um, the most snow. So all the Great Lakes can do this. Uh, if the wind is kind of parallel to the longest part of the lake, and you can create just one snow band, kind of all of that <laughs> moisture and lift goes into that one uh, band. And you can create just amazing rates of snow, three, four, five, six inches an hour. Uh, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. And the Tug Hill Plateau northeast of uh, Lake Ontario is one of those places um, that's incredible. But also the UP uh, of Michigan can get tons of phenomenal snow and the mountains aren't the biggest, but gosh, they get a lot of snow. Um, <laughs> this is also the reason uh, that Japan gets a lot of snow. Um, because the Sea of Japan to the west of Japan does not freeze uh, like a lot of the Great Lakes early in the season. So you have when the cold wind blows over it, it picks up moisture and then hits the mountains of Japan um, and dumps a lot of snow. So lake effect snow is a thing, but kind of oddly, especially um, for, for our lakes, if it's a really cold winter, uh, that lake effect snow will shut off uh, by midwinter because the lakes will start to ice over and then there's no more flux of that kind of moisture from the lake up into the atmosphere. So the other great snow pocket we have in the east is northern Vermont. And it's it's hard to appreciate this until you really get out and ski it. But that band of six resorts along the Vermont spine, Sugarbush, Matter River Glen, Bolton Valley, Stowe, Smugglers, Notchay Peak, they can get up to twice as much snow as the rest of New England. And because it's a little colder up there, they, they tend to get a little less freestyle. But but talk about why those half dozen or so resorts, you can maybe include Killington if you want, um, get more snow than the rest of New England. Yeah, there, there's, again, moisture lift, but um, there's, again, uh, a decent wind direction. You know, usually on the departing nor'easters or storms that move through, once those storms depart, then you get a coolish wind or a very cold, in some cases, wind from the northwest, which tends to be a pretty good wind direction for the air to hit those mountains and be forced to rise. And you also have moisture flowing around that nor'easter in a counterclockwise way. So if you can picture kind of the center of the storm just off the coast of Maine, maybe, and the flow of moisture around and flow of wind around that storm counterclockwise, that, that flow can wrap moisture back around into kind of the northwestern sections of uh, New England. So it's a decent wind direction. They can get some moisture and that can keep the snow going on the backside of the storm while other mountains are kind of drying out. So uh, just some good fortune in geography uh, as storms depart that area to, to keep some moisture and a favorable wind direction in that region. All right, Joel, so much good stuff today. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you sharing all of your insight, all of your experience with the listeners. I, I really Wish you the best of luck as you continue to grow this business, and I'm very eager to see what comes next. So thank you very much, and I'm really hoping to get out to Colorado and make some turns with you or, or wherever you are at some point. And, and hey, you never know. Maybe you will even ski the East again, uh, and I'll, I'll be right there with you. I will I will love to ski the East, and, and largely because people who have only skied in the West look at a little bit of ice and 
and have this smirk on their face. But if you can't see your reflection in the ice, then it's not real ice. So uh, I, I love to test my skills. But um, yeah, thanks thanks so much for having me. Uh, for the listeners that that went deep on on weather and entrepreneurship, and Stuart, I'm excited to see your company grow and 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 listeners supporting you as well because it's great coverage and useful coverage uh, that we so needed um, in, in the ski industry here. Well, thank you so much for saying that, Joel. I really appreciate it. That's Joel Gratz, CEO and founding meteorologist of Open Snow. Just amazing. There are some podcasts that I just absolutely cannot wait to share with you, and that was one of them. Thank you so much for that, Joel. I really, really enjoyed that one. I hope you did too. Thank you very much for listening. Coming up on the end of the year, and I still have plenty of pods coming your way. I already have a few in the can, and we will wrap the year with a conversation with Palisades Tahoe President Guy Byrne. Next year is just stacked. I have already scheduled conversations with the leaders of Mount Spokane, Whitefish, Seven Springs, Eagle Crest, Holiday Valley, Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, and Stevens Pass. Also, the storm is breaking into Canada, if you haven't heard, and we are starting big. My first three Canadian podcasts are scheduled to be with the leaders of Whistler, Banff, and Sun Peaks, and more to come. Remember, the very fastest way to get those episodes is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.